1: or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele.
0: And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is The Leading Learning Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode 140 of The Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode, we talk with Howard Ross and Shilpa Alamchandani. Howard is the author of the best selling book, Everyday Bias, and is also the founding partner of Cook Ross, a firm that focuses on organizational development issues, including the role of unconscious bias in the workplace. Shilpa is the Director of Learning and Innovation at Cook Ross, and in that role, leads the firm's efforts to co create learning solutions with its clients. And we guarantee that listeners are going to find the conversation with Howard and Shilpa thought provoking and highly relevant to the work of every learning business. But before diving into that conversation, we want to be sure to acknowledge our sponsor for the second quarter of 2018.
0: And that sponsor is Review My LMS, a collaboration between our company, Tagoras, and 100 Reviews, the company that's behind the very successful Review My AMS site. As the name suggests, Review My LMS is a site where users can share and access reviews of learning management systems. But in this case, the focus is specifically on systems that are a good fit for learning businesses, meaning organizations that market and sell lifelong learning. Contribute a review and you will get access to all existing and future reviews, and there are already more than 120 on the site. And if you don't have a review to contribute, there's also a subscription option. Just go to ReviewMyLMS.com to get all the details.
1: For our resource for this episode, we're going to point you to a collection of thought papers that Cook Ross makes available on its website. These are completely free, they don't even require an email address, and they cover a range of topics related to diversity and bias. Among the resources there, you will find Howard Ross's white paper, Everyday Bias, Further Explorations into How the Unconscious Mind Shapes Our World at Work. And that's a great introduction to the issues he explores in more depth in his book, Everyday Bias. To get to the link, just visit the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 140. Now, Jeff, I know we were particularly eager to have Howard and Shilpa on this show. What can listeners expect from the conversation?
0: Well, yes, uh, definitely we're eager to, to have Howard and Shilpa here. I first encountered Howard and his ideas when I stumbled across his book, Everyday Bias, and I was immediately struck by really how critical it is for learning leaders to understand the concept of unconscious bias and the barriers that it can create for learning. And I even wrote a fairly lengthy blog post that looks at how the bias patterns that Howard identifies in the book can impact learning. And we'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. And it just so happened that when I reached out uh, about doing an interview with Howard, he was on the verge of publishing a new book titled Our Search for Belonging, How the Need for Connection is Tearing Our Culture Apart. And this is another essential read for learning leaders, and and we do discuss it some in the interview. And then I was also really thrilled to have Shilpa be part of the conversation. She is herself a, a learning leader. I mean, really, both Howard and Shilpa are learning leaders. And she's the person charged with making sure the ideas that are at the heart of Cook Ross's work translate into actual new thinking and new behavior for the firm's clients. It was just a great conversation, and the one last comment I'll make before we roll into it is that both Shilpa and Howard shared just really great stories about their own most powerful learning experiences, and listeners will definitely want to stay tuned in for that near the end of the episode.
1: So without further ado, let's roll the interview with Howard Ross and Shilpa Alamchandani.
0: Hello out there. I'm Jeff Cobb and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. And today I am very pleased to be joined by Howard Ross and Shilpa Alim Chandani. Howard Ross is a lifelong social justice advocate and the founding partner of Cook Ross. He's considered one of the world's seminal thought leaders on identifying and addressing unconscious bias. He's written about the topic extensively, including in his best-selling book, Everyday Bias, and it's a topic that continues to play a major role in his recently published book, Our Search for Belonging, How the Need for Connection is Tearing Our Culture Apart. Shilpa Chandani is Cook Ross's director of learning and innovation, and she's a learning and development professional with over 17 years of experience in diversity, inclusion, and intercultural learning. And she leads Cook Ross's efforts in co-creating learning solutions with its clients. Shilpa and Howard, I'm hoping we're gonna be able to co-create some learning together here on Leading Learning, and I welcome both of you to the show.
2: Thank you, Jeff.
3: Thanks so much, Jeff, it's great to be with you.
0: Well, I really appreciate your taking the time. I think that the uh, the work that uh, you know that I know you've been doing for for so long, uh, Howard, really both of you have been doing for so long, it's just, it's really important to the audience that we're serving here with leading learning. So, I wonder if I can get you to just say a little bit about you know what your focus is there at Cook Ross.
3: Sure, Jeff, thanks. Um, you know what we're really trying to do is to work with organizations to help create cultures in which, Uh, People feel included, feel a sense of belonging, and function at their highest level. And uh, that shows up in lots of different ways. You know, we've worked with, I think, companies now in 47 of the 50 states and probably close to 50 other countries at this point, just about every kind of industry you can imagine. But they all have the same common uh, framework, which is that people work there and that uh, that the way people interact has a huge impact not only on the success of the business, but also on the experience that people have working in the business. And so what we're trying to do is create workplace environments in which people can relate really effectively with each other, to get the job done, and also feel known and included.
2: Thank you. Just to add to that, we, um, you know, many of our clients uh, look to us for consulting services on how to improve their cultures, and a big part of that, of course, is learning, is facilitating experiential learning workshops um, for employees, team members at all levels of the organization to really help them to shift the way that they show up and how they engage and interact with each other at work.
0: And I know I mentioned this as part of the introduction, I know that uh, this whole concept of unconscious bias uh, has been very important to your work, at least in in recent years. And I, I'm wondering, you know, how how and why did did that emerge to be such an important part of the work?
3: Sure. Well, you know, I, I've been doing diversity and inclusion. We're being paid for doing diversity and inclusion work now for almost 35 years, Jeff. And in, in the early days, uh, we used to do that work with the two by four. You know, we would. Uh-huh. Sort of, you know, Try to show people why they were wrong and how they could be better people, and you know whack on them until they finally saw the error of their ways, and then people come to great realization and cathartic realizations. And if people cried, it was always great. And, you know, <laughs> a lot of theater in it too. But and I don't mean to make light of it in the sense that we were all doing the best we could at the time, but we had very little information about what really worked and what didn't, because. You know, we were in the early stages, and in the early stages of anything, you're working on relatively limited information. What began to happen was, began to notice this pattern, which was that there were a lot of really good people, decent people, who would continually make the wrong decisions or even or even speak thoughts that you would be surprised they would have because they just seemed like really good people, and a number of incidents that triggered that, but started us on a path of looking at, well, if, if being a good person is not enough, if this isn't just about you know being a good person, and what is it really about? And um, and so we started by looking at dynamics of identity in various different ways. You're looking at psychological models, Freudian and Jungian models of identity, and then and it actually greatly influenced by Eastern traditions because in, in the eastern traditions your buddhism and hinduism especially um, identity and, and personality is seen very differently than it's seen in the west in the west mm. they are personalities as these fixed things where in the eastern traditions they are much more tuned into the fact that these are actually in reaction to our life experiences and once that key got unlocked then we start to say, well, if if we're forming bias based on our life experiences, if these are learned patterns of behavior, then couldn't they be unlearned? As opposed to a fixed personality experience. And right around that time, in the sort of mid to late 90s, uh, the early research from the Implicit Association test uh the test that was designed at harvard university virginia and university of washington to test for implicit or unconscious bias came out and started to give us material to work with and then the final piece or not final because we're always growing but the, the real pivotal next piece was um in the uh right around that time, about 15, 20 years ago, when some of the new neuroscience research started to come out, we started to understand more about the brain and the mind and how we make decisions. And the nice thing about being consultants, as opposed to academics, is we can learn something today and go out and teach it tomorrow and and see the impact that it has. And the more we would use some of this new information to talk about the same subject we've been talking about for years, all of a sudden we started to find that there were people who'd been very resistant before who now started saying, wow, this is really interesting. I want more of this. And and the whole the whole thing took off, and
0: I definitely want to come back to that to, to how you do engage with people uh, around this. But be, before we go there, um, you know, for for listeners who may not have tuned into this topic before, can you give just a, an example or two of you know what you mean by unconscious bias and how how that pervades our lives? You know, what's what's a situation where that would come out uh, that where we should be recognizing it.
2: Sure, Jeff. So there are so many examples of unconscious bias. They can be really um, simple examples. Like I think about um, when I have a question about technology and how to, to best leverage technology and I'm in a meeting with my team, I almost... Automatically turn to the youngest member of my team mm. and ask her the question so she could solve the problem. Now, there are people of all ages on my team and generations, and it's not necessary that the youngest person has the answer, but that's a bias that I have around youth and uh, comfort with technology and having those skills. So, that's a very quick assumption that, that I make that this person has the answer to my question. Now, that's kind of an everyday, um, somewhat harmless example. And then you have something like Starbucks and and what happened recently when um, two gentlemen were actually arrested uh, because uh, a person who worked there found them to be threatening in some way and and uh, then they were removed from, from the restaurant. So that, uh, I would imagine, was probably um, triggered by unconscious bias and some kind of fear. Obviously, the consequences are much greater in that kind of an example.
0: Well, it is amazing. I just remember being struck by this in, in reading your book, Howard, just, I mean, just how pervasive this is sort of everywhere you turn, if you, if you stop to think about it, if you become conscious, you know, for just a minute, you, you realize how much bias is is pervading your life. And, uh, and and to be honest, it's, it's kind of uncomfortable to, to realize that because nobody wants to think of themselves. I don't, I don't think, you know, as a, as a biased person. So it's, to go back to what you, you know, started to, to reference in terms of your, your teaching you know, you're going out to to work with people around this topic. Um, I mean, how how receptive are people? It's it sounds like you know you, you said that they're they're pretty enthusiastic, but are there there challenges there in you know in making making people aware of their bias and then you know ensuring that they're that they're actually going to learn and, and do something positive uh, with this new consciousness that they have.
3: Yeah, well, it, it's, uh, I'll get the in but I just want to comment before on on the what you were just talking about i think that there is this sense when we start looking at this work and really understand how prevalent bias is is in our lives it is that moment that you described i remember when i was writing the book and i had probably read the 100th study or something and i was in my the writing room at uh, my wife and i have a place we go to on weekends and and uh, I was in there writing, and she came in, and I was just sitting back in the chair, like, looking perplexed. And she says, what's going on? I said, well, like, I've read enough of these studies now, so I wonder if I can believe anything I think. It's,
2: really <laughs>
3: cool. it's, it's one of those moments. Of, I don't know if you're familiar with Gary Larson in far Side cartoons, but oh, the yeah. great cartoon he has with these three cows standing in a field, and one of them's looking up, and his eyes are as big as saucers, and the caption reads, Oh, my God, this is grass. We've been eating grass. It's one of those kind of moments, you know, <laughs> where, where you just all of a sudden realize um, that we're not thinking the way we're thinking. And, um, and I think that that's at the heart of, of what, we're, what we're trying to get people to see is that bias is not fundamentally bad or good. It is simply a function of the mind. Uh, the challenge is, of course, it can show up in ways like Shilpa was describing that can be harmful, in some cases fatal, as we see with police officers who shoot people who, who are unarmed people but who look threatening. Uh, it can be fatal, but it can also be incredibly helpful to us when it helps us spot danger or spot a circumstance early enough to react and respond to it. The, the, what we're trying to do is to get people to be more aware of their biased processes, their inner processes, so that they can distinguish between the times when it's helpful and the t- times when it's not, more times than they are now. We don't deceive ourselves into thinking that we can make bias go away entirely nor that we can manage it entirely every time because it's just not realistic to think that we can. Uh, But what we can do is, is we can help people be more aware of the function, less afraid of it, and embrace the notion more that, yes, I do have this mental function that's affecting the way I make decisions. If I want to make good decisions, whether about people or anything else, let me get aware of how I'm making the decision. And the more information I have about the levers that are behind the scenes helping me make this decision, uh, the better choices I'll be able to make.
0: And so what, what's the typical process when, you know, when you are in a teaching situation or, you know, as, as you describe it uh, on your website, I know is, um co-creating learning. I mean, what is what are the, some of some of the actions, the interactions that you take people through to kind of make this real and to get them to that point of being able to to you know make better decisions, be more conscious.
2: Yeah, Jeff, there are uh, a lot of experiential learning techniques that we incorporate in our workshops so that we're not talking at people or lecturing about uh, bias and giving a a whole like, you know, neuroscience kind of uh, lecture. Rather, we want our um, learners to experience something that reveals some of the biases that they have. And uh, then that lived experience opens their mind to saying like, okay, if I do have these biases, if in fact I am jumping to these conclusions so quickly without giving it careful thought, what can I do about that? And what are some ways in which I can um, pause and reflect and make better decisions? And so um, in terms of actual exercises, um, one that I can describe to you is is called uh, the quick decision. And essentially, we have small groups of people given a stack of 20 cards with a profile of a person on each card. And it has a picture, a name, and a few facts of that, about that individual. And the task is, in a limited amount of time, to narrow that group of 20 uh, candidates for a project team down to five. And they have to agree on you know some process to get there. Now, because of time pressure and because of limited information, this Triggers biases, right? We're asking mm. people to use their automatic brains uh, to make some decisions very quickly. And then, uh, after that simulation is over, to then uh, kind of dissect what just happened, debrief what criteria people were using uh, to make those quick decisions. And there, lo and behold, reveal our biases, right? Someone was smiling, someone wasn't. This person looks competent, this person doesn't. Um, this person looks too old to do the task. This person too young. All of those kinds of things um, then get unearthed in an exercise like that.
3: And then we have another one, Jeff, which is called the big decision, which is um, a, a selection process, a talent management selection process, where people in the room are given any one of six different resumes and asked to um, to decide between zero to 100% how likely they would be to recommend a person for a particular job. And it has a resume with a picture of a person and a narrative about the person which presumes to come from references and the like. And they go ahead and make their selection, and only find out at the end that all six are identical with the exceptions of the pictures, names, and pronouns. And we routinely have people who rate the exact same resume from 10 to 90%. So they can see right in front of their eyes. In fact, there are lots of times when I've worked with senior groups particularly senior leadership groups where you come into these groups. I'm sure a lot of our listeners can relate. You come into the groups where, you know, people were told that they have to be there and you can tell there's not a lot of enthusiasm Mm -hmm. and we'll start with that exercise and then show them the, what we call the big reveal when we tell them that they're actually all the same and they start looking at each other's paper. Wait, I don't believe this. And and all of a sudden, all of a sudden they've seen bias play out right before their eyes. So they're now interested in what they can do about
0: it. And so when they walk out of an experience, you know, like that, like you said, you know, they've maybe been sent to it. So somebody's expecting some positive results to to come from this. You know, hopefully they're going to be able to make better decisions. Um, hopefully that's going to lead to things like uh, more fairness, uh, social justice on on a, on a bigger you know picture scale. What what are some of the the other big benefits of of being more conscious about bias? Um, you know, what's the, what's the big upside of this?
3: Well, one thing I want I to um, really emphasize, as you were talking about that, better decisions and social justice, et cetera, is that one of the things we really emphasize with our clients, Jeff, is that this is a situation uh, where we can do well by doing good. Hmm. You know, when, when let's say if Shilp and I are going into an interview and somebody tends to lean towards me because they see men in leadership more than they see women in leadership on an unconscious level. It's not only unfair to Shilpa, but it's also a stupid way to make a talent management decision because you're rolling the dice to determine if you get the best person. (laughs) Since the criteria you're using aren't even criteria that you're aware of. And so, I think it's really important for people to understand that that this is a place where by teaching people how to do this, we we either way that we emphasize it, if we emphasize it for the best in the best interest of the business, then people benefit relative to fairness. If we emphasize it based on fairness, people benefit relative to the business. It's a win-win on both sides.
0: And you know most of the the people who are going to be listening here, I mean, they can benefit personally from this, but they're also going to be responsible for. For facilitating, for for leading um, learning, you know, in, in a variety of different circumstances, and um, I mean, and it seems to me that bias in just about any form is is going to be a barrier to learning. Um, and, and the you know the, the the big broad sense of learning, is there anything you could suggest to somebody who's responsible for leading, facilitating, producing uh, learning events to help maybe mitigate uh, some of the the bias that uh, attendees might naturally bring into that learning situation that could potentially prevent them from getting everything out of it that they could?
2: That's a that's a very interesting question, uh, Jeff. Because there's certainly all kinds of expectations people have coming into you know a major uh, learning event of the speakers and you know what kind of status that they have and um, what they're supposed to get out of that um, particular learning experience. And so uh, some we, we teach a number of of techniques to help people to really. Um, slow down and pause and reflect on uh, what those assumptions are in fact when we do diversity work you know one of the questions we'll often ask participants are what are the stories you were just making up about me as i approached the microphone and to stand in front of you you know what Mm. just by observing my demeanor my appearance my dress um, you probably had all kinds of very quick uh, judgments you were making about me as the person in front of the room and to kind of acknowledge that and name that because we do this all the time. And to then be able to, to give voice to it and let it go, right? Because, you know, now you've acknowledged it and you're willing to accept that you could be completely wrong about those assumptions and then create the openness to learn. And perhaps there's something, um, you know, that you didn't even know was there that you could learn from this this person once you let go of the judgments that you had about that person.
3: Yeah. I think the other thing, Jeff, is that it's, it's really important that... Um, facilitators of this work particularly have done their own work on the issue. Mm. Uh, one of the things that we really emphasize with people is uh, in, when we're training our own facilitators is, is to come from a condition of humility, not acting as if we've got it together and now we're teaching here to teach you the light, um, but rather that we're all in this together. And, um, and, and these instances regularly come up. I mean, Shilpa and I were at a conference along with uh, my wife, Leslie Traub, who's also one of my park business partners. And uh, we were coming back from Minneapolis from a conference and we landed at, at National Airport here in D.C. and walked out into the main concourse and walking 20 feet in front of us was Martin Luther King III, Dr. King's son and I was, I was a little bit gobsmacked to be honest you know and, and exactly starstruck and, and I, I went up to him and just very politely you know because i know sometimes public people don't like to be approached and just went up to him and just you know asked to shake his hand he, he couldn't have been lovelier really he was with his wife and another young woman and um and he, I, you know, thanked him for the role his father played in my life, as I'm sure millions of people have, and then asked to take a picture. We took a picture, and this other young woman who was with him took the picture. And then the next day, um, Leslie and I were some some visitors, and I was telling them about it. And, uh, and I said, yeah, he was with his wife and um, probably his assistant. And she said, Leslie said to me, and no, actually, uh, she was his chief of staff. And I said, I sat there, stop for a second. I said to myself, wow, if that was a young man, would I have assumed that it was his assistant? And I, I don't know the answer to that, obviously, but, but my guess is I probably would have been more likely to say maybe it was his lawyer or maybe it was, you know, something else. Uh, but, and, and so, you know, what we try to get across to people is that we're human like they are. We want facilitators to be willing to share their own humanity, their own blind spots, because in doing that, we can actually invite people into the conversation, make it safer for people to talk about their own biases.
0: You know, and as I'm listening to both of you uh, talk about this, it it just it seems to me there's a lot in this that's about simply being willing to potentially slow down a little bit, just to to pause, um, to take that time to to reflect, and and to have the willingness in the first place. You have to have that humility that's going to, you know, make you able to do that. But but you have to make that time, and and as a facilitator of learning experiences, figuring out ways to to help people make that time to to help them pause and reflect in the way that they're going to need to if they're going to recognize that they've got these biases that might be interfering with their learning. Does that sound on track?
2: It does. And part of what we also help our clients to understand is that you can build these pause moments into systems and processes in your organization, partly Mm -hmm. it's your own own individual everyday decisions. And then when you think about a process of interviewing and hiring, for example, what do pause moments look like there as well? Right? Where is that opportunity to um, reflect before you go into an interview? Right? To dispel some of the assumptions you might have made about the candidate based on the resume that you just reviewed. Right? And just acknowledging also that you may be projecting things onto this person from your own experience, based on where you went to school, where you grew up, um, what things are important to you that don't really have anything to do with that candidate or the job. It's really more about you. Right? So being able to see those things. And so our job is to identify those opportunities to build in pause moments to disrupt bias all along the way
0: well and I'm gonna I'm gonna I guess pause a little bit here or maybe maybe turn us a little bit because um I want to take this this conversation around bias to where it seems to have evolved uh, in your work or, or at least in in your writing, Howard because you know you're your recently published book is titled "Our Search for Belonging: um, How Our Need to Connect Is Tearing Us Apart." And uh, you know, I, I'm about halfway through that. At this point, as I was saying before we started, it's it's another fascinating and, and timely read. It, it definitely carries on the thinking about unconscious bias and and how that plays out in our in our relationships and our connections to others. Um, I'm wondering, would you would you tell listeners a little bit um, about the the premise of this new book and why belonging has become uh, such a critical issue as kind of a, a, a follow-on or an extension of, of, uh, of this work around unconscious biases.
3: Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Um, the, uh, the, well, the, the, the actual gestation of the book came, as, as has been true for most of my work, come from my own struggles, You know, my own trying to figure things out. And, and in this case, it was really spurred by the presidential campaign, uh, You know, starting a couple of years ago. Uh, I've always been somebody who tried to at least at least try to understand things from the other point of view. You know, it's something I've always prided myself about. And even when I was younger and doing civil rights work and the like, I, you know, I, I think I had more of a focus than most. And a lot of that comes from my, my upbringing in my home. My parents used to encourage us to be able to defend different points of view on the spot. And so we were trained to think that way, you know? And I found myself being sucked into the them versus us stuff in this campaign more than I had ever before. And the more I talked to other people, I found I was clearly not alone in that. And I became really curious about what it is that has us as human beings become so tribal at times like this. You know, this separation that we're seeing in our political life, but this is transferring into our social life more and more. We know that thousands of people have canceled Thanksgiving dinner, for example, over the last couple of years, rather than be with Uncle Ernie, who voted for a different candidate than they did. And <laughs> that was something that was really... Uh, confronting for me, the notion that, that my political beliefs could be so strong that they could supersede my family. Um, and so started to dive into that, and at the core, I began to discover that there's some fascinating new research, uh, neuroscience and, and cognitive science research, about how the human brain is designed for us to be social animals. And that's where uh, John Robert Tortaglione came in, who who was a mentee of mine, who was in London at the time studying the neuroscience of decision-making and and started to uncover a lot of this research. So I pulled him, and I want to give a shout-out also to Nikki Caldwell, who did a lot of great work with us, both in editing and organizing, as well as managing my time to write, which is (laughs) in and of itself a major task. Um, and, And what we discovered was that the human brain is really wired to belong. Um, We're we're designed to fit into groups. And it undoubtedly goes back to the early stages of our um, existence uh, when it was almost impossible for somebody to survive alone. I mean, you would see an errant person in the old movies, it was the hermit on top of the mountain or something like that. But for the most part, human beings can't couldn't survive that way and, and haven't been able to survive that way for all of human history. It's a little bit easier now. We can be a little bit more independent because you can go to a store or something, but even then you still need the people at the store. But for the most part, our human history was built around tribal relationships where you would be in a group of people and you would hunt together, you Live lived together. You would share protection with each other. Uh, sometimes the entire tribe would move to warmer climate during certain parts of the season or cooler climates during certain parts of the season. And out of that, we have a need to feel connected, to feel like we're part of something. And when we don't have that need filled, when we feel like we're isolated from a group in any way, it actually triggers activity in the same regions of the brain associated with physical pain, the dorsal, the dorsal and insular areas of the brain. Um, and, and so When we look at what's going on in society today, we can see how uh, we've gone from a bell curve society where most people were in the middle and were issue oriented. So when I grew up, for example, in the 60s, There were Northeastern Republicans who were pro-civil rights and Southern Democrats who were against civil rights, even though most Democrats were for civil rights and most Republicans against it. There were certain Republicans who were against the Vietnam War and some Democrats who were for the Vietnam War, even though most of their party went the opposite direction. It was very common, and famously so, for politicians to reach across the aisle. You know, famously, Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy, the most conservative and the most liberal senators, had a very close friendship and worked together on education, or Joe Biden and John McCain worked together on campaign reform, um, but nowadays, of course, we've moved from that bell curve into a dumbbell curve, where everybody's on the ends and nothing's in the middle, and it's it's really locking us up. And so, in the book, uh, what we did was we looked at that from the standpoint of understanding the neurocognitive science behind it and the social science behind this need to belong, and what we've learned about how groups impact us, um, and then we looked at it relative to race, religion. The media and politics, and see how those four dimensions show up as well. But the preme- the ultimate premise of the book, is that workplaces today actually may be our last best hope to bridge some of these gaps, because um, because workplaces are among the only places anymore that we're forced to come together with people who are different than us and and learn to work and live together.
0: And so, when you when you go into a workplace with um with these new ideas, and I'm sure you've probably already been doing uh, th- this some. Um, how are how are you engaging people around the concept of, of belonging and um again kind of co-creating that learning with them
2: so jeff one of the things that we recognize is really important is to uh, develop empathy, right, for people who are different than you, because part of this tribalism, as Howard described it, is that you have more trust in people who are like you than people who are not like you. So how do we get outside of what we know is familiar and that we can trust to really understand things from another person's point of view, right, which brings us to the piece about empathy, So one experiential exercise that we do um, with our learners is an activity that we call Mind Shift. And that you uh, have a profile of an individual um, that just has um, a a photo, a name, and a quote from this person about something that they experience every day. Often it's a kind of a micro behavior, some subtle inequity uh, that they experience because of an aspect of their identity, whether that aspect be ethnicity, or age, or gender, gender identity, uh, uh, political affiliation, any number of of different topics. We've got, you know, 26 of these. And the exercise is to um, read your card, and then there's kind of a guided visualization. Close your eyes. Imagine that you're this person, right? Imagine that you go through life Let's say with a disability where every time you walk into a room, people scramble to give you a chair and um, I get, you know, draw a lot of attention to the fact that you have special needs that, that the rest of the group doesn't. And while the intentions may be good, the impact on me as the individual is, is like, oh, I feel like I'm always being singled out. Um, mm. Right. And so to take a moment and reflect on what would it be like to experience that time and time again? Um, How would it affect my relationships at work? How would it even affect my performance? Um, And that kind of exercise around empathy helps people to then broaden their perspective, right? To think outside of their own group, outside of their own tribe, so to speak, um, to really uh, understand life from, even just a glimpse from another perspective.
3: Yeah, I think that this is really important. You know, one of the things that we've... um we're also exploring is using storytelling and Hmm. narrative sharing. There's this wonderful wonderful old story um, that uh, Gregory Bateson used to tell, Margaret Mead's husband, a great anthropologist in his own right, and he used to tell a story about how they were trying to create, create a computer that was human and they worked for years and years and created this computer and finally they pressed the button and the machine word and spin and everything and spits out this piece of paper and he picks up the piece of paper and on the piece of paper it says, I have a story to tell you and he said, then we knew it was human because we think in stories. This is the way we process. We process through our stories and um, one of the things that we notice is that when people get a chance to share their narrative, not just what they believe but why they believe it, what's the fear that's driving their concern, it's incredibly powerful. I know that you know from reading the book that one of the things that i did to start and working with this book because i'm my politics generally are on the left and um you know and, and most of my friends are on that side as well is i went out seeking out people who voted for president trump to talk to at the time of the book i think i i interviewed about 50 now it's well over 100 and, and in fact i get so much value out of it that i keep doing it and um and one of the things that i found was how much um i had been stereotyping folks who voted for him as, as a singular group. But we have a tendency to do this anyway. There's a there's a phenomenon that's what we call the outgroup group homogeneity effect, that we tend to think of people who are in groups outside of ours as, as homogeneous. Right. We know all the differences in our own group. We see them as all the same. Um, but what I found was with the people who I talked to who voted for President Trump, that they ranged from people who were the sort of kind of hard-nosed person, you would have seen a TV on a rally or something like that, to people who literally said to me, quote, I held my nose and voted for him because I just couldn't vote for her. In fact, 56% of the people who I interviewed actually said they voted more against her than they voted for him. Many of them disagreed with him on a lot of policy positions, but they had a really strong, sacralized position, like abortion, let's say, or or gun rights or something else that they just could not vote against. Um, There were some people who just saw him differently, completely than I did. But overwhelmingly, really nice people. Um, no, you know, nothing strange or different. Um, the kind of people you would, in fact, some cases, surprising who the people. You know, one guy was a Ph.D. philosopher from Princeton, and somebody else was a master's degree in education from the University of Pennsylvania, and, you know. So so um, it was incredibly helpful, and the stories had actually built enormous, enormously more empathy for me in the, in talking from people, to people from that side of the political realm, and what I notice is because I'm bringing more empathy to the conversation and not judging them as much, but really wanting to listen and understand, we actually have some incredible conversations that actually lead to potential solutions to things because we're willing to listen to each other rather than demonize each other.
0: It is amazing how, how powerful that is when you're, you know, when, when somebody... Stops just being an abstract and, and you, and you get to engage with their story and hear, you know, what's really happened in their lives and and why they have the perspectives, uh, that they have. And I think, uh, again, it seems like that uh, so much of this comes, comes down to, to slowing down a little bit, taking time to pause, to reflect, to listen, um, to engage, uh, basically, and, uh, just being open to, to doing that. Um, I'd, I'd like to be, because of the nature of the, the audience that we serve here, I've had a, a, a sort of a perspective or a question on my mind that, I wanted to raise with you because, you know, you've talked about political groups and, you know, they're obviously, you know, the sort of racial and ethnic uh, type uh, issues that can come into play, but um, kind of a, t- a different type of grouping. Most of the, of our listeners, I think probably most of them um, work for trade and professional associations. So, you know, th- basically groups of people who are bonding together um, uh, because of the a professional identity, uh, I guess. And I'd I love your, perspective to the extent you, you have one and I'm, I'm sure you do uh, on, uh, what what are some of the what are some of the potential opportunities or, or challenges for for those types of groups and I'm thinking particularly since you know these are supposed to be groups that are there to uh, kind of move a field or an industry forward they're supposed to be kind of the you know the keepers of the knowledge the the promoters of learning of, of positive change and growth in, in whatever field or, or, or sector uh, they're serving what should they maybe be a tuned to uh, in terms of being those types of groups?
2: Very interesting question, Jeff. I immediately thought about uh, some colleagues of ours recently did some work with a group of urban planners, a professional association of urban planners. And, you know, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, bias is not a common topic in these uh, professional conferences for this particular group of people. And so this was a new topic that our colleagues, um, Allison Robinson and Zanilda Rodriguez um, brought to the conference. And what the what was so fascinating was how they helped urban planners to see how bias impacts the decisions they make in this profession, which is shaping our cities, our communities all over the country, right? Mm. Where people live, where they work, where they shop, how they engage with each other, which is all about how the space and the and um, the city is planned, that um, access to certain spaces or not. Um, how they're designed for certain populations, how inclusive those spaces are. Those are all decisions in the hands of urban planners. And they may not even think about themselves as making those diversity and inclusion decisions every day. But in fact, that's part of their work. That's the impact of what they do. So like that, with so many professions, when you think about the populations, communities, businesses, that any of these trade associations, um, their members serve bias impacts their decision-making. It impacts um, how people access their services and their products. And so how can we, um, no matter what our profession, mitigate bias, disrupt our own bias so that we can be more inclusive and perhaps even reach wider markets than we would have ever expected, right? So there's that business case here as well, that you can be more innovative, you can reach a wider audience if you're able to identify and disrupt your biases.
3: I think associations are interesting anyway, Jeff, because um, you've got people who are coming together who represent different entities different organizations, they've got their own work but they're coming together while they're in the association space, whether it's a conference or a meeting or something, that's really important but then tomorrow I'm back in my space where I'm not even thinking from that perspective necessarily and so how that impacts the unconscious mind can be really interesting in terms of what becomes about the organization's best interest, the association's best interest versus my personal best interest the company's best interest um, we may have a company that's doing pretty well about diversity, around diversity issues but when we look at our association we may be tremendously underrepresented by certain groups of people of color, for example, or, or even um, demographic locations, geographical locations around the country so, or around the world for that matter. And so there are lots of places where difference can play out in ways that are slightly different than they are in business environments and, um, but are still really important.
0: Well, you've both just hit on a, a number of issues that I know are are pervasive uh, across the association world. I mean, they're they're pervasive everywhere. And I'm I'm hoping at this point that uh, that listeners' uh, wheels are spinning uh, as they as they hopefully pause and think about, reflect on how bias might be factoring into their life, uh, how belonging, uh, you know, where they belong, where they don't belong, is uh, is factoring into their lives right now. Um, plenty plenty of food for thought here. Before we wrap up, though, I'm going to switch gears a, a little bit um, because I have to be sure to ask both of you a, a question that, um, that we like to ask of everybody who comes on to uh, Leading Learning. And this this has to do with with your own personal learning. And you're obviously both people who uh, are very dedicated, I, c- I can tell, to, uh, to your own personal learning. So this is the question, and you can decide who goes first on it. But um, what is one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education. And it might be a situation in which you were the learner or an experience in which you helped her facilitate, uh, help to facilitate or lead learning. But, but what was something that was really impactful for you and why? So, uh,
2: that's, I'm reflecting on all the different adult learning experiences yeah. I've had right, since finishing formal schooling. One of the things that came to mind for me was I, I used to work for uh, the U.S. Peace Corps and traveled around the world facilitating workshops with Peace Corps staff, which are mostly locally hired people and uh, Peace Corps volunteers, Americans serving abroad in a service capacity uh, in communities. And I remember visiting uh, Rwanda, this was probably about 10 years ago. And uh, we had, I was doing some diversity training with a group of um, Peace Corps staff and volunteers. Um, And and, you know, the genocide was not so long ago. And this was a mixed uh, group of ethnicities in Rwanda, but you're not allowed to talk about ethnicity there and identify what group you belong to. And here we were talking about diversity, not being able to talk about um, Hutu or Tutsi or any other uh, affiliation. And we had a language barrier because many of the participants were French speaking. Um, and I had a little bit of French, but not a lot. Um, and we did an exercise of uh, in silence, um, that it's called the impact of exclusion with a bunch of um, stickers that you put on people's uh, backs. And uh, so as a facilitator, I put a, a sticker on each person's back in the room. They couldn't see what sticker they had on their own back. And the uh, only direction I gave them was to organize themselves based on the sticker and that they couldn't talk. It had to be in complete silence. And then to observe what happened in the room... Um, with people forming these different groups and the stickers happened to be of different colors. So obviously people, you know, differentiated themselves that way. And then there were a few outliers that didn't fit in anywhere. And I've done this exercise for lots of different groups over the years, but it was really memorable for me to do it in that space with that group of people who couldn't talk about um, differences for which, you know, they had lost family members and we got to the heart of the issue of how when we divide ourselves and don't see our common humanity, the impact of that, what exclusion really looks like. And so that, for me, was a really profound experience as a facilitator and for me as a learner at that time, too, to recognize the humanity and the other and how to facilitate that. Wow,
0: that's a, that's a, a fascinating story.
3: Thanks so much for sharing that. I'm still emotionally moved by that, even as she's talking about it now many years later. So. How about you, Howard? Um, I think mine, you know, there have been so many. I've been so blessed to be in the various different circumstances, but I think probably the one that comes to mind is that I had the opportunity to spend a year as professor of diversity in residence at Bennett College for Women, which is a historically black college in Greensboro, North Carolina, and went down there not knowing really quite what to expect. There's this is old white guy coming in to teach young black women about diversity and inclusion. So um so i started the first class by stepping up in front of the room and saying hi hi i'm howard ross what do you see and i went to the blackboard put a line down in the middle of the blackboard blackboard and just started letting them write any put up anything they wanted so first they were pretty tame like tall you're a man you know probably white <laughs> that was what one of them said. Probably white, mm-hmm. and then uh, and but then they started to really go for it. You know, probably racist, probably conservative, probably wealthy, probably all these kinds of things. Filled half the blackboard, and then after a while, I stopped and I said, "Okay, now what I'd like you to do is to tell me what you think I see," and uh, and they put up all the projections that they had on the assumptions that they had about stereotypes that I would have them and filled that side of the board. And then we went back to the board with the, with an eraser and I went with each thing that they put up and said, now I want you to identify which of these things, you know, are true versus which are interpretations. And by the time we were finished, there were three left on the board. I think there was that I was a band that I was tall and, and I don't think even white was one of them, but I think bald was the other one. You know? um, but the, uh, but the, and 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 I said to them, that's what we're here to talk about this term. And and that was from there we were great. And and it was it was an amazing experience to be able to put myself in their lives because uh, it was very intimate uh, classroom experience. It was more more of a semester long workshop than it was lecturing. Um, and uh, I still today have five or six of them who this is ten years ago now, and they still five or six of them that I hear from regularly or call to get advice or something like that. And, and those kinds of experiences, I think particularly as a, as a white-skinned man who is used to being in environments where people accommodate to our culture, um, to be in situations like that or another one was being in spending 10 years on the external advisory board for the human rights campaign as a straight man, um, that, that they're incredibly rich learning experiences to be able to be immersed in other people's cultures where they're not necessarily accommodating. you uh when you when you're in the privileged group and and i'm I'm immensely grateful for those experiences
0: well that that's uh also a fascinating story thank you so much to to both of you for uh for sharing uh those stories those are fantastic learning experiences and uh again hope uh hope that gets listeners reflecting uh on on their own learning experiences well thanks so much again for for taking the 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 time to to be on the show today If, if if listeners want to know more about the the work you're doing at cook ross uh, find out more about your your books uh, howard where where should where should people go
3: uh, they can go to www.cookross.com or send an email to looking for answers at com, and we'll be glad to get back to them
0: well great well shilpa howard thanks so much for being on the leading learning podcast
1: thank you jeff thanks jeff it's
3: really been a pleasure
1: That wraps up our interview with Howard Ross and Shilpa Alamchandani. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 140. This includes a link to the free Cook Ross thought papers that we mentioned as the resource for this episode.
0: While you're there at the show notes, you'll also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear on Leading Learning, we'd be truly grateful if you would subscribe.
1: We'd also be grateful if you'd take a minute to give us a rating and a review on iTunes. Go to leadinglearning.com iTunes. Jeff and I really appreciate your ratings and reviews, and those reviews and ratings also help others interested in leading learning find this podcast.
0: And we'd also be grateful if you would take a minute to visit our sponsor for this quarter, Review My LMS. Salise and I put a lot of work into producing and delivering the Leading Learning Podcast, and one of the key reasons we're able to do that is because we're able to generate revenue through other sources like Review My LMS. So please visit ReviewMyLMS.com, and if you can, contribute a review to help others find the right platform for their needs.
1: And we hope you'll consider telling others about the podcast. You can send a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, pick another social network of your preference and spread the good word that way.
0: Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.